Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. The point that I want to make right here is simply this. The Bible is never outdated or irrelevant. The Bible is just as relevant today. And of course, again, we have to just look beyond our own immediate context and we realize, wow, this situation that Paul describes is actually more than likely going on somewhere in the world today with a Christian from one of these different backgrounds. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study in the book of 1 Corinthians. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his teaching on 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 13, in a message titled, Knowledge Puffs Up, Love Builds Up. Now, here's Pastor Brian. We've all heard the word orthodoxy, I would imagine. Uh, And the word orthodoxy, it refers to belief. So when you say someone is orthodox, it means that they believe the right things. There's a similar word that we don't use that often. This word is orthopraxy. And orthopraxy means or refers to right practice. So orthodoxy, right belief or teaching, orthopraxy, right practice or behavior. The Corinthians' problems were more in the realm of practice than belief. Here in this letter... Paul is not so much clarifying what they as Christians believed, but how they as God's holy people were behaving. And as we have seen, they have been behaving badly. The Corinthians believed the right things for the most part. Now, there were a few areas where they had some things wrong, and Paul will address those as we go along. But the issue there with them was really that their lives were not aligning with their beliefs. This letter is written as a corrective. So this letter is very different in ways from many of Paul's epistles. Paul's epistles generally have a big emphasis on on orthodoxy or a big emphasis on doctrine. And although that shows up here, it's a bit more subtle, But the real issues here are, again, very practical. And the letter is corrective in reference to the many areas where their lives were contradicting their professed faith. And as we've been going through this epistle, we've we've seen that. We've seen that already, right? We have seen how Paul begins after his greeting. He immediately jumps into the issues of quarreling and dividing with one another, issues that were rooted in their pride. He then addresses the issue of sexual immorality among them. He speaks of a man having sex with his stepmother. He talks about the legal disputes that were going on. He addresses that. And then confusion on matters of sexuality, marriage, and singleness. And so as we come now to the eighth chapter, we come now to another issue, and that is 
that of food sacrifice to idols. Now about food sacrifice to idols, Paul says here. So this topic begins here in chapter 8, verse 1, but it goes all the way through chapter 11, verse 1. Now, as Paul makes his way through, he is going to address basically two issues. Number one, he's going to address the overarching issue of Christians navigating life in an idolatrous culture. That's kind of the big picture from 8.1 to 11.1. Secondly, the immediate issue, that's the one that he's addressing here, that of Christians viewing and relating to one another when it comes to disputed matters and personal freedom in Christ. So that's what he's concentrating on in this eighth chapter. As we go to chapter nine, Paul will then show how the principle that he just lays out in chapter eight is working itself out in his own life and ministry. And then in chapter 10, he addresses the overarching question of navigating life in an idolatrous culture. So all of that to say, we're going to be looking at this underlying subject of idolatry. But now today we're looking specifically, though, at how Christians are to view and relate to one another when it comes to disputed matters and questions of personal freedom in Christ. But before we get there, I just want us to see that this passage, although it might seem a little bit odd to us or maybe foreign, you know, how does this really relate? It, it relates more than you might think. But let me say this. We Western Christians... And remember, they're Christians all over the world, right? So we Western Christians, and sometimes even more specifically American Christians, we tend to look at this passage and struggle to find some application to ourselves because, after all, when was the last time you came across food offered to idols? Anybody? Come across that issue this week? Anybody struggling as you went maybe to a restaurant with what was set before you because, well, this was actually offered in sacrifice to a God? This is something that for us in our cultural context, it doesn't seem to have any direct application. And because of that, then what we often try to do, and, and sometimes this is valid, is we try to, well, and even we'll do this today, we'll take the principle, but sometimes we try to find maybe parallel type things around us that we might apply it to. And sometimes those are called gray areas. Well, you know, there's these certain gray areas, that's what Paul's talking about here. Um, but actually, the gray areas, more often than not, turn out to be more cultural issues than biblical ones. And so the direct application, I don't think, can really be found by trying to find parallel gray areas. But here's what we need to understand. Even though for us, as I said, Western Christians, even though we might think, well, how does this relate to me? It relates directly to the 1.2 billion Hindus in the world today and the 500 million Buddhists in the world today. 
<laughs> See, we have to realize that this word is written to all God's people universally. And so this is a present reality and a challenge for those living in those cultures. For those who come to faith in those contexts, these are the everyday issues that they face. So when I was pastoring in London years ago, um, we had a very uh, diverse congregation, people from many different nations around the world. And I remember teaching this passage. And I remember laboring and trying to find you know, some way to connect it with our cultural situation uh, there in London. And I'll never forget After the teaching, a young man came up to me from a Hindu background and said, what you read about today is what I have dealt with every day of my life since I became a Christian in a Hindu context. And I was quite honestly shocked. Wow. You forget, you get so in your own world, you forget that People live differently. And even though we don't have this kind of idolatry, although we have plenty of other types of idolatry that we'll talk about in the weeks ahead, this kind of idolatry is still a reality in the Hindu world. It's still a reality in the Buddhist world. In devout Hindu families and Buddhist families, people daily offer sacrifices to gods, and then they take those same sacrifices And from part of that, they nourish themselves. So the point that I want to make right here is simply this. The Bible is never outdated or irrelevant. The Bible is just as relevant today. And of course, again, we have to just look beyond our own immediate context. And we realize, wow, this situation that Paul describes is actually more than likely going on somewhere in the world today with a Christian from one of these different backgrounds. Now, let's look at how Paul deals with the issue here. So in the Greco-Roman world, almost all the meat sold in restaurants and in the marketplace had been offered to idols. It was almost universal. So here's the question. How were Christians to deal with this? Were they to stop eating meat altogether? Were they to recognize that idols were nothing and not worry about it? Uh, What if some Christians thought one thing and some another? Who was right? What should be done? These are the very issues at hand, and this is what Paul addresses here. So he starts with knowledge. He says, we know that all possess knowledge. We know that all possess knowledge. Now, there's two groups of people that Paul's going to talk about here. He's talking more specifically to the group that would be categorized as strong. So they're stronger in the faith. They don't have a bunch of hangups. They've got a, a really good theological grip on things. The problem is, though, they're prideful about it. So he's going to be talking to them, and then he's going to also be referencing those who are weaker. And depending on your translation, if you happen to have the NIV and the 2011 version, you will notice that we know 
that we all possess knowledge. We all possess knowledge is italicized, which means that the translators saw this not as something Paul was saying himself, but he's quoting them. So he's saying to them, in other words, oh yes, we know that all have knowledge. This, this, is, this is their statement. In other words, their statement is, look, we all know that this isn't a problem. We all know that nobody should be hung up on these things. The key word here is all. And what Paul is wanting them to see is that the all is their little group. And as far as they're concerned, is nobody outside their little group really matters. So it's like, hey, we all know this. In other words, if you don't know this, then you're kind of stupid. And so we don't have to give place to that kind of stupidity because everybody knows we've got knowledge. But then Paul says this, knowledge puffs up. Knowledge puffs up. Knowledge has that tendency, whatever the field, when people gain a certain amount of knowledge about something, there oftentimes tends to be a pride that comes as a result of that. And we see this a lot of times in the theological world. I have heard people say things like, well, you don't really know the original languages, so you don't really know what's going on here. And they say it sometimes in a very condescending tone. So look, uh, we know. And that knowledge has puffed them up. It's made them proud. The NLT, New Living Translation, translates knowledge puffs up. Knowledge makes us feel important. And another translation reads, knowledge alone makes people self-righteously arrogant. And this is a fact of life. This happens. And that's what was happening here. So they knew, but this had, this had led to pride. And Paul says, those who think they know something don't yet know as they ought to know. So in other words, the prideful person the person who's lifted up in pride over their knowledge doesn't really know what they need to know. Whatever knowledge we attain, we need to hold it humbly, recognizing that there's still a lot that we don't know. And of course, in comparison to God, we don't really know much of anything. So what we need to know in the end, is that we don't know as much as we think we know. And that is what Paul is hinting at here with them. Now, knowledge is good, but it's not everything. And we want to have knowledge. We need to have knowledge. The Bible exhorts us to know the Lord, and we know the Lord through seeking him, through studying his word, and so forth. So knowledge is good, but it's not everything, and not everyone has the same experience. Not everyone is going to respond to the facts in the same way, and we have to be aware of that. And so as Paul goes on here, look in verse 4. 
And this is interesting because what Paul is going to do here in verse 4 is in one sense he's going to say to the strong, I get it. I, I pretty much agree with you. Listen to how he does it. He says, so then, about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing. Paul's saying, I know that too. An idol is nothing in all the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things came and through whom we live. So Paul is basically saying that their understanding of things is actually right. They get it. An idol is really nothing. You know, the Zeus, Aphrodite, these different gods and goddesses that the people were offering to. Paul says, no, you're, you're right. They're nothing. There is only one God. I agree with you on that. But, verse 7 Not everyone possesses this knowledge. See, Paul is at heart a pastor. Now, Paul is a brilliant theologian, but he's not only a theologian. You know, I read a lot of theology, and sometimes I think, man, these theologians need to connect with people. Like, they need to come down to earth. And sometimes I read theological books or articles or whatever the case might be. And I find that these people, technically they are right about a lot of things, but they rarely think about the implications of this for the average person in a congregation. This is why I'm absolutely convinced that God has given to the church pastors. Pastors help I think, balance theologians. I mean, we help each other. We need theologians. We need people to do that deep work. We need people to think thoroughly on things. We need to glean from that and appreciate that. But at the same time, where the theologian is often thinking more about the truths and the information, the pastor thinks about the people. And this is what we see here. So this group of people that Paul's addressing, they have the right theological perspective, but they don't care for people. So for them, it's like, I don't care what happens with them. They're wrong. They're ignorant of these truths, and I'm not going to let their ignorance bother me. I'm going to do what I want to do. But Paul says that is the problem. And so he tells them not everyone possesses this same knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. So see what Paul is saying is like that's fine that you understand this that you've got a good grip on this theologically I understand it as well but what you're forgetting is not everybody gets it 
Not everybody is going to have that same kind of understanding. Not everybody is going to be able, because of their background and their experience, they're not necessarily going to be able to just blow this idolatry off like you can and just say, oh, this is nothing. Because for them, it's still something that was so deeply rooted in their lives. It still, to them, seems like this is not the right thing to do. So Paul goes on and he says that you can end up wounding the weak conscience of such a person. Therefore, he says, be careful. Be careful, however, that the exercise, listen to this, the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. So you see the argument? Hey, we know the facts. There's only one God. And based upon that truth, you know, we have the right to participate in this because it's nothing really anyway. And nobody should judge us. Nobody should try to limit us. We're free. Paul is saying that that kind of freedom, the kind of freedom that might stumble a weaker person is the freedom that you should set aside rather than exercise. And then he goes on and he describes a possible scenario. He says, for if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge, Paul's kind of poking at him here, you know, with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So in the ancient world, the temples, the idol temples had restaurants connected to them. It's convenient. You could go and offer a sacrifice and then you could have a meal. And this is what the people did. They would go to the temple. They would offer a sacrifice. They would invite friends. Hey, let's meet at the temple. I'm going to make the sacrifice. And then we'll all have a nice big feast. And they would feast on the things that had been offered the portion of the meat was offered to the God, and then the rest of it, they would have it prepared for them, and they would participate in them. This is just what they did all the time. And now, let's join Pastor Brian in the studio as he shares about this month's resource on Back to Basics. An important aspect of the Christian life is understanding that we are in a spiritual battle. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, the Apostle Paul told us in Ephesians chapter 6, but we are in a war against these principalities and powers, against these spiritual beings. And so I've written a book that was at one time entitled Spiritual Warfare, but in the updated version, I changed the title to The Powers of Darkness and the People of God. And I think this is such an important book. So many of us go about experiencing the what is really the attack of, of the devil, but we don't even realize that that's what's going on. So this book will inform you not only of how to detect when the enemy's at work, but also of how to combat the various schemes of the enemy to mess with us and to undermine our faith and to just basically make our lives miserable. So I want to encourage you to pick up a copy of The Powers of Darkness and The People of God. 
Again, this month's resource is a book titled The Powers of Darkness and the People of God by Brian Broderson. You can order the book The Powers of Darkness and the People of God by going to our website, backtobasicsradio.com. Scroll down until you see the photo of it and then click on the donate button. When you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you the book The Powers of Darkness and the People of God by Brian Broderson. It's our way of saying thank you for your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of 1 Corinthians. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California. Hi, this is Cheryl and Brian Broderson. And we wanted to tell you that we're going to Israel in October 2022. And we want you there with us. Yeah, the dates are October 23rd through November 4th, and this is going to be a tremendous trip. Cheryl, what's your favorite thing about Israel? I love the Galilee, but Brian, you and I both know there's so much because we love watching the Bible come alive, whether you're at Tel Aviv or you're at Jerusalem or Caesarea. Yep. Or Mount Mount Carmel. Carmel. Yes. And it is the trip of a lifetime. So we'd love to have you join us. And if you're interested, we're going to have an informational meeting on Sunday, March 20th at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. Or you can find out the details if you go online at israel.cccm.com. Yep. We hope you can join us. It's going to be great. It will be.